Jesus' teaching and action in today's text are directed to the church whenever it is seduced by the world's definition of greatness, prestige, power, influence, and money. The antidote to such a concern for greatness is servanthood. The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the ninth chapter. Jesus and the disciples went on and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The Gospel of our Lord. Once again, our lectionary skips the first portion of a chapter and drops us in the middle of the next. Last week, we read the latter portions of chapter 8, in which Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah. It was the first foretelling of of these events in Mark when Jesus talked about the need for those who would follow him to lay down their privileges and comforts and to pick up the burdens and pains of the cross, the worst of the worst punishments for those labeled the worst of the worst. Jesus will qualify for this humiliation because he teaches and preaches against the earthly authorities who would divide the poor and oppressed into the deserving and undeserving. Such prophetic ministry is a threat to those in positions of power and privilege who want to keep those positions, if not also rise to new positions of power and privilege. Following Jesus's clear and direct statements of what will happen to him, betrayal, death, resurrection, the narrative moves into the ninth chapter, six days later. And the first verses of the ninth chapter were read way back in February because they tell the story of Jesus's transfiguration before a small group taken from the Twelve. In our liturgical calendar, the calendar of the church year, Transfiguration Sunday is the one preceding Ash Wednesday and the start of Lent. Then with Peter, James, and John, we climb to the top of the mountain with Jesus and are given a vision of him with Moses and Elijah. And it's wholly awesome and truly indescribable. All the things we feel and know and witness and terrifying, the transformative clarity we are given in that instance. It's exactly the kind of moment in which we desire to dwell for all of time. But Jesus is a bit of a buzzkill. He leads us back down the mountain, back to reality, and says not to tell anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. 
and having the memories of goldfish, we wonder what he's talking about. Following the transfiguration story and Jesus' explanation of Elijah coming first, verses 14 through 29 tell the story of Jesus' encounter with a man who seeks help for his son, possessed by an unclean spirit, who convulses the boy into fire and into water. To our detriment, these verses, this story, are excluded from the Sunday lectionary. Narratively, this story lays groundwork for what follows as the disciples continue to have difficulty, as they struggle with this reign of God ministry with which they, and us too, as faithful inheritors, as Jesus' disciples today, have been charged. And then verse 24 also contains that very powerful, poignant cry and prayer of desperation. I believe, help my unbelief. Were I more on top of things and had planned further ahead, perhaps this would have been our sermon today. Instead, our lectionary drops us in the middle of Mark's ninth chapter with Jesus again telling his disciples how he will be betrayed, suffer, die, and rise again on the third day. Now, how many of you have ever had the experience of being told something repeatedly and either not understanding the content or just not hearing it clearly? And after saying, what, a couple of times, you think or you can't, or you're, you're too embarrassed to ask, what, again? Okay, good. I, I knew I couldn't be the only one. <laughs> and that is, the, that is kind of what I'm imagining the disciples are feeling right now. Jesus has said this betrayal, death, resurrection thing a couple of times now. And it's still not making any more sense than it did the first time. It's like someone trying to explain to me why or how my reflection in a spoon is upside down. I know it's something to do with light and how it, I don't know, refracts or something, but this must be why I'm a pastor and not a physicist. So the disciples are at the point of not asking Jesus questions or trying to get clarity from him because they just don't want to seem dumb. So they're trying to figure it out amongst themselves. Among, apparently, other things they're discussing. Because when they get to Capernaum, Jesus asks them what they've been talking about. And here, now, I think it's kind of like if you've come upon a group of kids, you know, who have been just a little bit too quiet for a while, and you ask them what they've been up to. You get silence. And blank, innocent, pretending stares. And they might shrug and go, Nothing. Why do you ask? We're just perfect little angels. And Jesus, <laughs> right, been there, done that, say some people. And Jesus, like the knowing adult or parent, sits them down and speaks to what they've been plotting without them even confessing. Having argued about which of them is the greatest, the best disciple, the protege who will take on their own students once they've completed their studies with Jesus. They get told by Jesus that whoever wants to be first, whoever wants to be number one, must be last and the servant of all. It's not really how we think of or define greatness or the best among us. Where the world tells us about accumulating wealth, titles, and awards, the fancier the better, of course. 
the importance of ascending the ranks at work, keeping up with or even trying to have more than the Joneses. Jesus says that stuff doesn't matter. Instead, we are to put the needs of others before our wants and comforts. Is your neighbor without food while you have enough for leftovers? Give them what they need from what you have to start, not what you have left over. Headlines about kids with school lunch debt are indictments of our moral failings as communities and as of us as Jesus's disciples today. Is your neighbor sleeping on the streets while beds and homes and hotels are empty? If you can only give a blanket to help against the cold, do it. But if you can offer shelter against the dangers of street life, do so. Last spring, early in the pandemic, you know, I'm scrolling through Facebook, and I saw two pictures from Vegas placed side by side. In the first, people without homes are sleeping using the lines of a parking lot from an empty of vehicles to make sure that they are socially distanced from this pandemic. And in the second, a nearby hotel looking down upon this parking lot, they had lit up in the windows dozens of empty rooms so that the windows lit up in the shape of a heart. It is a moral failing of our communities that we force people to sleep in parking lots like objects in need of storage. It is a moral failing of our communities that we continue to argue about things like eviction moratoriums while we are still in the uncertainty of a pandemic that continues to reach new heights. But back to Jesus here, to emphasize love of neighbor, putting the needs and good of others above our wants, our privilege, Jesus takes into his arms a child, a person without the rights and responsibilities of a full citizen, but one who is still bound by the law, a person that what many would say should be seen, but not heard. Children are without power over their lives, they are without prestige, wealth of their own, and so on. Yet Jesus says if we welcome children, if we welcome those without power, prestige, and wealth in his name, as he welcomes, then we welcome God who has sent him, God who sends us all. In the church, we tend to think of welcome as passive. If somebody shows up, they'll be welcome. Take a seat, join us for worship. You're welcome. But being welcoming, actually welcoming others, is active. When we take into our arms, literally or metaphorically, those without power, prestige, and wealth, when we welcome and take care of the poor, the oppressed, and the downtrodden among us as Jesus does, we welcome God. As we sing and or listen to our hymn of the day, which is Marty Haugen's All Are Welcome, Pay attention to the activity of welcome. Where love can dwell and all can safely dwell. Where all God's children dare to seek to dream God's reign anew. Hands reaching to heal and strengthen, serve and teach and live the word they've known. True Christian welcome is found in our faith, active in love for our neighbor. Go. Follow and do like Jesus. Amen.